that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest or to show clearly, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy. Good morning, church. Yes, brother, he, he already thanked them, but thank you again to the youth who let us, uh, thank you ladies, but my brother, we cannot forget our drummer. Thank you, drummer. <laughs> you know, hey, it's been, I don't mean to embarrass him, but it's been, it's been one of my, some of the little joys that you have in life, right? Some of these little things that you might ever notice, somebody might even not know that they're bringing you joy. For about the past two years, I've had the joy of listening to Isaac sort of practice the drums in here. He comes in, you know, maybe every week, every other week in practice. So you get to hear somebody grow over the course of two years of doing the same thing. So we can't forget our drummer, okay? So thank you, brother. Uh, it, it's, it's a good thing, church, to have, to have the youth be a part of us, to be a part of, of the church. Because if they are Christians, if these youth are Christian people, then they are part of of the church. They don't have to wait until they graduate from high school to then join in with the bigger, larger church, okay? Uh, so it's a joy to have them with us because they are part of the church. But that goes for us as well, right? We, we are not doing this life of faith individually. We, we are part of something bigger than us. We're, we're part of a tradition that goes for the last 2,000 years, okay? We, we, we are part, this church is part of the, the grand corporate church, the church universal that exists because of the work of Jesus Christ, okay? So we're going to do something different this morning to start. If you would, take your note page. There's a page that you can sort of scribble notes on here if I happen to ever say anything worth taking a note on. Turn it to the back because there's, there is something noteworthy on the back of that sheet, Okay? I want us to say this together. I want us to confess this creed together. Okay? So the back of your note sheet, this is the Nicene Creed. Uh, I'm just going to get us going and we'll say it together, okay? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, Begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, 
And the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Church, in the year 325, okay, in the year 325, church leaders gathered in Nicaea, in modern-day Turkey, to take up an extremely important topic. The issue on the table was, who is the Son? Who is the Son? You see, a popular teacher from Egypt named Arius was making dangerous claims. He said, there was a time, there was a time when Jesus wasn't. God became a father because once the son was not. Jesus was created. And this teaching was beginning to gain popularity in the church. But two men, Alexander and Athanasius, strongly opposed that view, believing that biblical truth and the doctrine of salvation itself hung in the balance. And so at the first council of Nicaea, these two brothers spoke out against Arius. And in God's providence, the Arians were defeated. And as a result, one of the great creeds of our faith was born. What we know as the Nicene Creed was set forth as the biblical and orthodox understanding of the nature and person of Jesus Christ. See, truth had prevailed. And now, 1,700 years later, 1,700 years later, in glad confession and worship, we enter into the historical river of faith, joining with our spiritual fathers, announcing that this truth we too believe. We believe that truth. Friends, what history shows us is that the person and work of Jesus are always under attack. Listen to me, friends. The enemy would have us believe anything and everything about Jesus as long as it isn't the truth about Jesus. And so truth must be defended because Christianity itself stands or falls on the person and work of Jesus. It succeeds or fails on the reliability of his sinless life the reality of his resurrection, and whether or not a true and genuine incarnation actually took place. God in human flesh. That's one of the major obstacles of our faith. Okay? That's the issue the Apostle John faced nearly 250 years before the Council of Nicaea. That council took up the question of the deity of Jesus. John had to defend the humanity of Jesus. And he had to do that with a group who had once been flourishing. Okay? This group had once been flourishing and growing. 
but it appeared that time had taken a toll on their zeal and their discernment. You see, at the time John wrote this letter, around A.D. 85, the church was composed of second and third generation Christians. Christians who were becoming lax in their devotion to the truth, which in turn caused their once passionate flame for Christ to begin flickering. And this set of circumstances gave just enough room for the false teachers to slither in. And so deadly imposters began infiltrating the churches, seeking to sever them from the life-giving connection with the apostles. And this chopping at the apostolic root of authority led many people within the church to question the content of the faith. They were left confused by these contradictory messages and began wondering, whom are we to believe? And what are we to believe? And what we'll see in our study this morning and for the next four or five months is that John's letter was written to answer these concerns. Okay? To the question, whom were they to believe? These new teachers, right? The new teachers or the old apostles. John emphatically answers, the apostles! Those who have seen and heard and touched Jesus. To the question, what are they to believe? John confidently asserts the apostolic message, the apostles' teaching about Jesus. And so with great pastoral concern for those who he would call his little children, this last living apostle lovingly composed this epistle with four purposes in mind. Four purposes. Number one, purpose number one, to promote full joy in the family of God. Promote full joy in the family of God. And this is what he says. He writes, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Number two, to prevent sin in the family of God. He says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Number three, to protect the family of God from false teachers. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And number four, to provide the family of God with assurance of salvation. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. And right out of the gate, John begins pursuing those four purposes by pointing us to truth. The truth about Jesus. Remember what we said last week. It's fundamentally important that we believe what Jesus taught about himself. It's vital that we understand the apostles' teaching. Our salvation hangs on it. And John's message to us in this letter is very blunt. Our brother was right. John is blunt, and this is hard. This is hard stuff to read. And this is what John says. He says, if we don't understand the biblical truth about Jesus and the gospel, then we're not Christians. See, John is concerned with the genuineness of our faith. And the question he's asking throughout this entire epistle is, what does real Christianity look like? And do you possess it? 
And if you remember, John gives us three tests by which we can know whether or not our profession of faith is true. Right? Three tests by which we can know. The first test is doctrinal. We must believe the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, come in the flesh. The second test is moral. We must obey God's commandments. And the third test is relational. We must love God and love others. That's how we'll know that we're born again. Okay? In chapter 5, verse 13, John, John states his fourth purpose. Okay, this is what he says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. In his gospel, in the gospel of John, he writes similar words to that. In chapter 20, verse 31, he says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see the difference there between those two passages? The gospel of John was written so that we might have eternal life. 1 John was written so that we might know we have eternal life. Friends, ours is a faith of knowledge, not blind leaps of faith into the dark. It's faith informed by God's truth. Listen to me, okay? Listen to this. Christians aren't satisfied with knowing the bare minimum about their God. Our lives are to be spent mining the depths of the riches of who God is, okay? And John is writing to us in order to lead those of us who already believe to a deeper understanding of the faith, to a deeper understanding of God. He's helping us to build confidence in that which we already possess, okay? John says, By these three tests, we know and have confidence that we're Christians. Right belief in Jesus, right obedience to God's commands, and right love for God and each other. These foundations of our faith provide avenues of assurance for us. And by repeatedly applying them throughout the letter, John does two things. Okay, These are the two things that happen. He provides assurance to those of us who know Christ, but who may wrestle with doubt from time to time. Okay? He provides those of us assurance, but he also exposes those who profess Christ but don't actually know him. Okay? That's what this letter is meant to do. Provide those of us who know Christ with assurance, even though we might doubt, but expose those who simply profess Christ with words. You see, living, saving faith is more than words. Anybody can recite a bunch of words, right? Anybody can say this. Anybody can sit in a pew on a Sunday morning. But real faith is believing and obeying and loving. Yes, faith is grounded in truth. But it's truth believed and put into action. But it's also right belief and right action. And so before we can act rightly, we must believe rightly. In our opening verses this morning, John introduces us to the word of life. 
That's what he says, the word of life. And he wants us to know and know rightly this word of life. He says that's the only way we will have fellowship with God. And so John unashamedly begins with truth. He begins with doctrine. He begins with the apostles' teaching. And this is his point. Okay, this is his point to us. Divine fellowship demands apostolic fellowship. Okay? Divine fellowship demands apostolic fellowship. Or it's said in a different way, okay? If you want to hold the hand of God to stay in fellowship with him, you must hold the hand of the apostles. Stay in fellowship with their God-appointed, God-approved testimony concerning Jesus Christ. And it's to that testimony that we turn in verses 1 and 2. Okay, so turn, turn there. Verses 1 and 2. Listen to what John says. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Pretty clear, right? Not really. Okay, and we'll, we'll get to that, okay? That, that is a very difficult passage to wade through and to dissect and to, and to examine. Okay, and so we'll get to that. But right now, friends, right, right at the very beginning of our study together, I want you to understand something, okay? John speaks in absolutes. Okay, did you catch that? He writes with certainty. He insists upon adherence and submission. And listen... He can do that because these are not his opinions that we are reading. The Bible isn't merely a collection of the opinions of men that we can pick and choose from. No, it is the black and white objective truth of God. Church, God is speaking to us in the Bible. And he's not giving us advice. Right? God is speaking to us in the Bible. And he's not giving us advice. He's calling us to bring ourselves under the authority of his word. Not to become our own authorities. With that being said, some of you are going to be uncomfortable as we work our way through this book. Okay? Just just know that right from the very beginning. You see, we've been taught, this culture has taught us, that the greatest virtue one can possess is questioning everything. Opposing authority. Never landing on a particular truth, but being open-minded to a variety of differing truths. And so we don't like black and white. We like a lot of gray. Okay? We live in a time that looks with suspicion on any type of certainty or conviction about the truth. This culture has abandoned the idea of absolutes. Choosing instead to arbitrarily grant equal validity to every single person's opinion. And sadly, the church has fallen victim to that mindset. Even though we, the church, have been entrusted, we've been entrusted with God's truth and tasked with guarding it in order to be viewed as inclusive and tolerant and progressive, the church has accepted seemingly any and every viewpoint that's come down the road. 
refusing to stand on biblical truth when it comes to issues such as hell and sin and salvation and obedience and the exclusivity of Christ. With regard to biblical interpretation and exposition, right, teaching and preaching, a significant movement is gaining momentum among professing Christians. And this movement says, no one can know for sure what the Bible really means. And so anyone who explains Scripture should offer nothing more than a cautious, humble, open-minded opinion regarding the text's meaning. But listen to me. That's not humility, and it's not virtuous. That is essentially an accusation against God that he's unable to clearly reveal himself and his truth to humanity. Friends, listen. I love learning. I'm all for asking questions, okay? I'm all for learning and growing. We have to do that to ensure that what we're accepting is the truth. But such a radical and rebellious skepticism in regard to the very idea of truth blatantly ignores the Bible's own teaching that truth does exist and that Christians can and must know that truth. You see, the writers of Scripture were absolutely certain of what they believed. And under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, they wrote with clarity and boldness offering God's saving word of truth. And yet today, today in our culture, they're vilified and condemned as insensitive, unloving, and anti-intellectual. And the same accusations are made against any pastor or parishioner who dares to champion truth and then limits that truth to the Bible. Same thing happens today. You see, what it comes down to is this. Fallen man really doesn't like the Bible's clear message of sin and righteousness. And so denying that the Bible can be understood, just denying that, gives false comfort to those who don't like the truth the Bible reveals. They say, see? My sin isn't really that bad. God wouldn't want to deny us pleasure, would he? That's not what holy means. God is a God of love, not of wrath. All paths eventually lead back to God. That's what we hear all the time. Now, in contrast to that, those who love the truth are quick to seek it out and apply it to their lives. And friends, listen to me. Such God-honoring adherence to divine absolute truth is precisely what the Apostle John exalts as the evidence of genuine salvation. A love for God and His truth. You see, we must believe something in order to be saved. And what we must believe involves the truth about someone John calls the Word of Life. We're not saved by believing just anything about the Word of Life. We must believe the truth about him. We must know him and know him rightly. And so John draws our attention to to two truths about this word of life. Okay, Two great truths about this word of life. Number one, he is divine. And number two, he is man. He's human. Okay, look at verses one and two again. 
I want you to notice something. Notice that John is so anxious to get to this truth that we've been talking about that he just launches into writing, right? He foregoes the typical etiquette of naming himself as the author and identifying his audience. And what we're met with here is a perplexing string of pronouns that are running rhythmically throughout this introductory passage. Okay? That's what we see. Kind of a jumble of pronouns. And all of these we's and witches and you's can be confusing to us. I mean, what exactly is John trying to tell us in those first two verses? Right? What is which? What is the witch that he's referring to? Who is the we that he's mentioned? And what does the we have to say about the witch to you? You know, if we didn't know any better, we might think we jumped into a Dr. Seuss book here. Right? And yet, with just a little bit of work, we'll be able to see the great majesty behind the great simplicity of these pronouns. What we're going to see is the God-man himself. Okay? John begins... By saying this, that which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. And immediately we wonder, what or who is this witch? And just in case you listen to this again, that's W-H-I-C-H. Okay, that's, that's the witch that we're using here. What's the identity of this nameless pronoun in verse 1? Well, at the end of verse 1, John gives him a name, okay? He says, that which was from the beginning is the word of life. They're one and the same, okay? And yet, if we dig a little deeper here, we get another clue. Verse 2 broadens our understanding, telling us that this life was with the Father. Right? This life was with the Father. And so, imagine that you're a detective, okay? Biblical detective. And you're putting all these clues together, right? What do you see? Well, the person being described here is from the beginning, right? He's called the Word of Life, and he was with God the Father. Now, does that sound familiar to you? While you're biblical reading, do, do those three phrases sort of sound familiar to you? Well, look at the first four verses of the Gospel of John, Okay? Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 and 4. This is what they say. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Those two passages are almost identical. And yet we need something more still for a positive identification. Okay? And so if we go to verse 14, chapter 1 of John's Gospel, and our sister already read that this morning, it tells us who the Word is and what the Word did. Okay? Listen to what it says. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of one of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. All right? And so taken together, these verses tell us that in the beginning, 
There was a life-giving word who was with God the Father. Meaning, they were distinct from one another. And yet, this word is himself also God. The word is a distinct person, but shares the one divine nature. And then this word became flesh. Revealing himself, right? Manifesting himself to us as the only son of the Father. And so, friends, what we have here is a truth test of our faith. The identity of the which is God incarnate. He who was from the beginning and is the word of life is God's son, the man Christ Jesus. And so when we pull back the curtain and put all these pieces together, what we see is that John is making a statement about the eternal preexistence and deity of Jesus. Right? This is his confession. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. That's what John believed. And that's what Jesus taught. He said, before Abraham was, I am. That's what Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Indicating that he is the God of of Exodus chapter 3. He said, the Father and I are one. He said, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. Friends, Jesus believed himself to be God. And John confessed the same. But listen, Jesus is also man. And John believed that as well. And church, that's what we must confess if we're to be called Christian. The word of life being described in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, is the life of undiminished deity. But it's deity made flesh in Jesus Christ. And so, in verse 1, John sets out to defend the real and genuine humanity of the Son. And he does that by making a series of your statements about this word of life, okay? He says, he says this, we've heard him and seen him and observed him and touched him. And if you notice, he says that and then he keeps on saying it in these four verses. He makes these verbs of perception, right, a point of emphasis. But why? Why would he do that? Why would he make a point of seeing and hearing and observing and touching Jesus? Well, he did it to fight against a great lie being packaged as the truth. That was his reason. Friends, the enemy of our soul always tries to corrupt and pollute. Okay, He doesn't have to necessarily invent anything new. He takes what God intends for good and he pollutes and corrupts it. And this time he was trying to corrupt one of the foundations of our faith. Okay? One of the earliest heresies in the church was called Gnosticism. And friends, Gnosticism still exists today. The philosophy, this philosophy perverts the idea of truth and knowledge. The Gnostics taught that the way to salvation is through some secret superior knowledge that God only grants to a select few. Right? Forget about the Bible, right? The Gnostics say we should be looking for this secret, superior knowledge, okay? They also teach 
that the physical material world is evil and that the spirit is good. And so can you see where this is going here? If the body is evil, then a God who is spirit, who's a spirit being, could never take human flesh, right? That's preposterous. And so John is responding to a branch of Gnosticism that was teaching that Jesus only appeared to be human. Right? He only looked like he was human. They said Jesus was from God, okay, but denied that he was God in the flesh. They said his spirit was from God, but he could not have had a physical body. What people saw when they looked upon Jesus was a phantom or a ghost. Now let me ask you, what effect do you think that that belief would have on Christianity? And is it even a big deal? Is that a big deal? Well, if Gnosticism is true, if that teaching is true, then you can't have a real incarnation. You can't have a sacrificial substitutionary atonement, and you can't have a real resurrection. If God did not become man, we are lost. We are helpless and hopeless in our sin. And that's because in order for his sacrifice, in order for Jesus' sacrifice to have the infinite worth necessary to atone for the sin of mankind, Jesus had to be fully God, right? He had to be God. But in order for Jesus to represent us and to take the penalty of sin upon himself, Jesus had to be fully man. He had to be God to have the power of Savior, and he had to be man to have the position of substitute. Through the incarnation, God's purposes for human beings in this world are fulfilled in Jesus. And now we understand why John rushes out of the gate telling us that he's seen and heard and touched Jesus. Right? That's why he's doing it. Basically, he's saying this. Listen. He's saying, friends, brothers, listen to me. These Gnostics who've slipped into your churches are deceiving you. They're lying to you. They're denying the incarnation of Jesus. But what they deny, I've experienced personally. I walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that his body was real. You see, by speaking as one giving an eyewitness account, John is stressing the historical reality of the incarnation. He says, this word of life that was with the Father has now been made manifest to us. Meaning, Jesus was made visible to us in the incarnation. The eternal, pre-existent, fully divine Son came into the world as the definite revelation of God. Friends, Jesus, Jesus is the voice and image and embodiment of God. And through Him, through Jesus, God is made audible and visible and touchable. That's what Jesus did in the incarnation. And that's the point John hammers home against these false teachers. That he and the other apostles have seen Jesus with their own eyes. He says, we've heard Jesus with our own ears. And we've touched him. And one of us even put our fingers into his wounds. 
My brothers and sisters, it is imperative that you understand the doctrine of the Incarnation. The biblical Jesus is no myth or fairy tale. He's no ghost or illusion. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The Word become flesh. And the biblical Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's not half God and half man. He's not all God and no man. He's not all man and no God. He is the God-man. He's like no one else who has ever lived. He has always been with the Father, and at Bethlehem He came to be with us, to save us from our sins. But speaking of us, what about us? How are we who live in the 21st century able to see and hear and touch Jesus when he no longer walks the earth? How is that possible? How are we connected to the reality of this first century event? Well, the answer is through the apostolic testimony. The truth about Jesus passed down through the church for the last 2,000 years. You see, the identity of the we... Right? One of those pronouns. The identity of the we that John keeps mentioning is the apostles. And these apostles, the we who have heard and seen and touched Jesus, were those entrusted with the sacred deposit of the gospel and called to establish and govern the church under the authority of Christ. Right? Christ gave the apostles the authority to establish and govern the church. This group of men who witnessed all that Jesus did were chosen by God to deliver his message to us. And this, and this man, John, this elderly man, on the verge of his last days, he's representing his dearly departed brothers, and he says, that's what we did. We spoke. We testified. We proclaimed Listen to what he says in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, having met God in the flesh, I'd imagine that, having met God in the flesh, John says the apostles couldn't remain silent about what they saw. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim. We share with anyone who will listen to us. You see, they couldn't help but speak about what they'd seen. But what exactly had they seen? Right? What is so important about this Jesus that they're carrying on about? Listen to me. This is what they saw. They saw water turn to wine. They saw people fed. They saw the blind given sight. They saw storms cease. They saw demons cast out. They saw people raised to life. But more than that, they saw God revealing His Christ. They saw God revealing His Christ. You see, miracles are meaningless 
without a purpose. Jesus didn't perform miracles for the sake of performing a miracle. His life and his words and his works all served the purpose of fulfilling the prophecies about the Messiah who would come to rescue his people. And that's what they saw. The glory of God had returned to earth in the person of Jesus. And the life of Christ, this life of Christ that we hear about, had one ultimate purpose. Walking the road that would lead to the cross. And that's what they saw, friends. They saw the Lamb of God led to slaughter in place of his people. They saw one pierced for the transgressions of sinners and crushed for their iniquities. They saw God himself dying a cursed death, nailed to a piece of wood. And they saw him lifted high. Lifted high in resurrection, rising from the grave, conquering death and the devil, and lifted high in exaltation, returning to the right hand of God the Father to await his second coming. They saw all of that, and they knew they must speak. They must speak truth about the only one who can give eternal life. That was their assignment. And so communicating the word of life was not an option. It was a command. You see, the apostles' message, listen to me, okay? The apostles' message is neither philosophical speculation nor a timid suggestion. It's a dogmatic affirmation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the concrete truth of God delivered by those whose experience and commission qualified them to make it. This was not a suggestion that they were given. This was pointing us to the only truth that can save us. But to what end? Right? What's the purpose of their proclamation? Well, to save us. But John sort of puts it a different way. He says, fellowship. Right? After all that that we've read in verse 3, he leaves us with the word fellowship. And friends, the fellowship being described here in our passage isn't coffee and donuts. Okay? Now, hey, I love donuts. Maybe I shouldn't be eating donuts, but I, I love donuts. But fellowship isn't coffee and donuts. It isn't just 15 minutes of conversation after church. Okay, It's deep communion and friendship with one another. It's the joy and oneness of a group of people who share and celebrate what they have in common. Right? That's what fellowship means. And let me ask you, what is it that Christian people, what is it that we have in common? Well, Jesus Christ in salvation. You see, one of the glories of the gospel is its ability to tear down walls of separation and unite us in fellowship. Our, our redeemed relationships with one another testify to the power of the gospel. You see, there's an amazing kinship among believers that transcends anything earthly, Right? We may have completely different interests and hobbies and personalities, but our mutual love for Jesus binds us together in an unbreakable bond of fellowship. That's what Jesus does for us, friends. 
It takes us back past our favorite football team, past any college team, college affiliation, and he unites us around the blood of the Savior, binds us together with the blood of Christ. But the fellowship being described in 1 John is also vertical, okay? John teaches us that our fellowship is not only with other believers, but also with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And listen, fellowship with God means relationship and responsibility. That's what fellowship with God brings, relationship and responsibility. God's mission becomes our mission. God's passions become our passions. We love what he loves. We desire what he desires. We hate what he hates. For those of us who have been reconciled to God through the blood of the cross, the Christian life should be an ever-deepening fellowship with God that creates and reproduces within us the mind of Christ. That's why we aren't satisfied with the bare minimum. Right? Because our life is meant to sink deeper and deeper into fellowship with God so that we may have the mind of Christ. And friends, listen to me. The good news found in our passage this morning is that we can have fellowship with God. We can be at peace with God. We can be in relationship with God. But remember what we said earlier. If we want to hold the hand of God, we must first hold the hand of the apostles. See, look again at verse 3. Okay, I want, you to, I want you to see this. John says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And then he gives us the reason. So that you too may have fellowship with us. Right? He doesn't say so you can have fellowship with God. He first says so you can have fellowship with us. And listen to me. That sounds almost arrogant, doesn't it? I mean, what's the big deal about having fellowship with the apostles? Well, the big deal is that the apostles have fellowship with God. They have seen and heard and touched the word of life, and now they possess the words of life. And John says, the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, whoever wants to have fellowship with God must first be joined to the apostolic testimony about God. Friends, which means this. We cannot dismiss the Word of God or His church as unimportant or unnecessary. We cannot do that. God has determined to use his word to bring dead men and women to life. And that word was given to the apostles and then delivered to the church. Understand something. Salvation didn't just happen to us. In order for us to be saved, someone had to call us to repentance. Someone had to tell us to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. Someone had to proclaim the gospel. And we had to believe the truth about the word of life. Truth first delivered to the apostles. And so our relationship with God starts by aligning ourselves with the testimony of God's apostles. And we do that, right? We do that. We align ourselves with the apostles by holding fast to the Bible as God's authorized That's first. 
The first way we align ourselves with the apostles is by holding fast to the Bible. Secondly, we faithfully participate in a local church that sits under the apostles' teaching. Okay? We cannot be disconnected from the church if we want to call ourselves Christians. Okay? To hold the hand of God, we must hold the hand of the apostles. Christ, the Word, and the church. There is no Christianity without them. Friends, you are in Christ. I am in Christ because of the we. Because of the we. The we who have seen and heard and touched Jesus. The we who couldn't keep silent but proclaim the truth about Jesus. You see, without the apostolic we, there is no you and me. Okay? There is no you and me. Without the holy, catholic, apostolic church, there is no communion of the saints. Right? There is no communion of the saints. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. There are men and women who are not ashamed of the gospel. Men and women who trust God's word, believe God's word, proclaim God's word, and live God's word. You see, that's John's desire. To see his little children walking hand in hand because of their shared faith in Christ. That's what he means in verse 4. When he says, and we are writing these things so that, you, so that our joy may be complete. Right? That's what he means there. He says there is joy in the Christian life. There is joy in the Christian life. And you understand what else he just said there? He says that joy is dependent on the truth he's sharing in this letter. Right? Joy is dependent on truth. Joy comes from knowledge. It comes from knowing and believing and doing something. And so John wrote and communicated these things so that the fullness of joy could be experienced by all believers. Right? That's why he's writing. That was one of his purposes. So that our joy could be complete. You see, but what are these things? What are the these things that he's writing? Well, these things are the three avenues of assurance that we've already seen, right? Truth, obedience, and love. Confessing together a right belief in Jesus. Participating together in a right obedience to God's commands. And sharing together a right love for God and one another. Those are the marks that identify us as Christians. Those tests prove the authenticity of our profession of faith. But they also do something else. They produce joy in our lives. Right? Truth, obedience, and love produce joy in our lives. And again, joy is one of John's four purposes in this letter. He intends to promote joy in the life of the Christian. The joy that comes from knowing, from knowing that we have eternal life. The joy that comes from knowing that our sins are forgiven. Listen to me. 
joy is so much deeper and richer in meaning than your situational happiness, okay? Some fleeting feeling based upon our outward circumstances. Joy is a spirit of exaltation regardless of our circumstances. Joy is a sense of supernatural strength that can only come from the Lord. Joy is the presence of Jesus in our lives by means of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Joy is the response of our soul that is rightly related to God through the knowledge of Christ Jesus as our Savior. You see, we know who Christ is. We know what Christ has done. And we rejoice that the truth has set us free. That Christ's truth has set us free. We have freedom from sin and freedom to obedience. And in that, we rejoice. We rejoice. But we don't rejoice alone. You see, verse 4 says, Our joy. Our joy is brought to completion when we are in fellowship with the Father, with His Son, and with one another. And so, friends, this is my last words to you this morning. Rejoice in your apostolic faith. The faith that was delivered to them by Christ and passed down from them to us. But understand something, okay? Having been joined to God through the apostles, you now have a responsibility to share that faith with others. To proclaim and declare and testify about the Jesus revealed to you in the Word. And here's why. Here's why you must proclaim. So that by God's grace, the lost may be found. The dead may be saved. And their joy, their great joy, might be our joy. Amen. Friends, hey, thank you for worshiping by engaging with God's word this morning, listening to his word preached and kind of digging into this, what seems like a really difficult passage to understand. And let me tell you something here, okay, as your pastor. Truth is not a cuss word, okay? You need to understand that because there is a silly idea running rampant in the church that somehow truth and doctrine bad, spirit good, okay? That's modern-day Gnosticism. How can we worship a God that we don't know? It's impossible. It's impossible. And it goes back to what we saw this morning about the first two commandments, right? To not worship false gods and to not worship the one true God falsely. We must know him. Salvation hangs in the balance, friends. And as we'll see a little bit later in 1 John, John says, let love not be in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. That's what love is. Father, I pray you would impress upon your people the necessity of knowing you. Of knowing you so that we can love you. And not knowing the bare minimum, but but spending these lives that you've graciously granted to us, spending them sinking deeper into the depths of the knowledge of who God is. Mining the, the 
depths of the riches of the character, the nature, the, the, the person of God. And in doing that for eternity, gather together around the throne in worship forever and forever and forever. We love you. We thank you. We thank you. We praise you for Jesus Christ, for the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. I pray that you would use truth, obedience, and love to assure those of us who know Christ, to assure us that we know that we have eternal life, right? Even in the face of doubts that we may have. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Assure us that we have eternal life. But then use that same truth to open the eyes of those who profess Christ but do not know him. Father, we pray for those who are on the verge of being told, depart from me, I never knew you. That should break our hearts. Father, use your word to bring us to a right knowledge of you and your son so that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. In the name of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.